0: Hey, before we get into this week's episode of The Culture, just a quick reminder that if you want to stay up to date with the show, you can follow it in your favorite podcast app. Just search for The Culture. All right, let's get into it. Hey there, welcome to The Culture, a weekly show about the latest in the world of pop culture, arts and entertainment. I'm Osman Faruqi, and today on the show we're talking movies. Theatres are finally open again, movies are being made, released and watched. I, for one, am deeply excited about being able to watch things again on the big screen. There's a whole bunch of exciting new releases coming out between now and the end of the year. So we thought, what a good opportunity to run through what we're most excited about watching. And to help, I'm very happy to be joined by the wonderful reviewer and the presenter of Triple R's primal screen show, Flick Ford. Flick, thank you for coming on The Culture.
1: Ah, oh, thanks for having me, Oz.
0: Cinemas are back. We're yes. in Melbourne. Things are opening up again. It's probably been maybe one of the hardest things. I know this is such like a first world problem to <laughs> complain about, but not being able to go... To movies in the last kind of eighteen months or so has been very stressful. It
1: has, yeah. It's I think it's prompted a lot of us to get some pretty fancy home cinema setups going on. I bought a projector during That's the lockdown. Nice. I, feel, I know a lot of other friends who did that.
0: I didn't realize this when I moved into the house that I live in at the moment, but there's a projector like built in no to way. our lounge room and a surround sound thing built into like the roof. And the walls. <laughs> That's and amazing. I didn't know that we moved in, but like for lockdown, it worked out really well. Yeah. Um, our office here in Carlton is around the corner from Cinema Nova, classic yes. Melbourne Independence. And, and I walk past it quite a lot when I'm getting coffee or lunch and just looking at those posters of movies that were supposed to be oh. released but then weren't. Uh, when you think about going back to the movies, what, what is it that you're. Is it the popcorn? Is it the seats? Is it. <laughs>
1: The seats, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, no, I feel like, okay, what is it about it? Choc Tops, definitely. Mm. Um, big fan of the Choc Top. Uh, but also just the sense of community mm. going to the cinema. Pre-lockdown, I went to the cinema by myself. As a film reviewer, I go there. By myself all the time, But there's something about even if you're on your own, you're surrounded by all these other spectators Mm. and you join in this communal act of watching this sitting in this darkened theatre. There's this ritualistic aspect to it. Um, I just love all of that. And then you just sink into another world.
0: So... What we're doing on this episode, is a bit different to other shows where I've kind of picked one thing or we've kind of gone in on one. We're so excited about movies coming back, and there's a lot of them. We're going to run through some of the movies we're most looking forward to. To see, so you can think of this as kind of your guide from Flick and Oz to what you should be lining up for, what you should be getting tickets for. And we're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about what they're about, the stories behind the film. We're going to share, you know, maybe why we're so excited to to see them. Um, I reckon we should get into it. Let's do it. The first film that you wanted to talk about. One of the biggest releases, I think it's safe to say, of the year, of the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, It's June.
1: My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all life known. Uh, what's to become of our world
0: you know it's cliche to call it the notoriously unfilmable I know. you know but it is as it's a film that it's hard to talk about without talking about you know the the weight of it the legacy of it the expectation of it it's a really interesting one because it's not actually out in Australia until December 2 but It's been out in the States for a couple of weeks. So it sort of feels like, you know, when when we were kids, there was this thing where movies would come out in America and we wouldn't get them for months. And then that stopped being a much of a thing in the last couple of years. And now it's a thing again and it's worse than it ever was because you're reading reviews, you're seeing memes about it. Like yeah. we've gone through eight layers of discourse on June and still no one <laughs> in this country can can see it.
1: It's a huge build up as well with the ticketing alone. Yeah. Like the tickets come out on sale, I think it's November 11. The film is out December 2. It's like a bloody music festival where we have to go into a ballot system. Totally. I and feel, and yeah, the rev-
0: reviews are basically like you need to see this on IMAX. Like yes. This is when it will. Yeah. You can tell I'm probably getting excited <laughs> about it. I'm very excited about it. But but tell us about Dune. Tell us about this adaptation. It's the second film adaptation.
1: Yeah. So you touched upon this before. So firstly, I suppose, like, let's just address all the build-up because there's a mm. whole lot of build-up. It is very multi-layered. So firstly, it very much fits into, like, like that summer blockbuster category. Big Hollywood names. Um, the use of that distortion boom, I think mm. it's called, that drone sound yeah, yeah, in the yeah. trailer. That's always a giveaway yeah. that that's, like, summer
0: blockbuster. <laughs> Does I do kill them all? God in heaven. The famous like the Nolan drone. Yeah, I feel like Inception yeah. made that a big thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. It was initially scheduled to come out in November 2020, um, but like so many films, it like continually got pushed back because of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, it is the latest film adaptation of Frank Herbert's uh, cult sci-fi novel series from 1965. Um, there's been so many different people involved mm. with this text across the last few decades. It's wild. Have
0: you read the book or the series? I
1: haven't, no. I'm a
0: huge... So I'm, I, think, I think we're called Spiceheads. I'm a huge Dune <laughs> guy. Like, I'm, I'm very excited for this adaptation. But tell us about the the previous iterations of this, how they've been received and why there is so much expectation?
1: Yeah, so probably the first person to get involved with this was a guy called Arthur P. Jones. That project never went anywhere, so I won't talk too much about that. 1975, we have Alejandro Jodorowsky Mm. tries to film Herbert's story as this 10-hour feature Mm. uh, in collaboration with people like Orson Welles, uh, Salvador Dali, um, with music by Pink Floyd. Look, they... A whole host of things happened. Uh, yeah. They ran out of money. They got into these really petty fights. Um, Jodorowsky lost the rights for the filming.
0: There's an amazing doco, Jodorowsky's June, which is about this story. Yes. Could not recommend that movie. Yes, enough, I think. Yeah. yeah.
1: I wanted to make something sacred to change the young mind of all the world. Michel Sidoux said to me, I want to
0: make a new picture with you. What do you want to do? I say, doom. His vision was so huge, so beyond what anybody else was doing at that time. Things that George Lucas wasn't even going to try. The Star Wars, it's enormous
1: kind of would still want to see this. Like, totally, I still yeah. love the idea of Jodorowsky, yeah. you know, the man famous for, like, El Topo, um, Holy Mountain, like, whole host of really surrealist films from, yeah. like, the 60s, 70s. I would love to see him make this as well. Like, I still mm. hope that's something he, you know, he's still kicking about. I think, out. yeah, he got
0: into this fight with the studio where he's like, it's got to be 10 hours, and they're like, <laughs> no one can watch a 10-hour movie, that's crazy, and he's like, sorry, sorry, that's what, it's non-negotiable.
1: Yeah, I kind of love him. He's, he seems like a jerk, but I kind of love him. Yeah. Uh, and then Ridley Scott um, was also set to direct at one point, so once the filming rights had been moved around, but that fell through. And then in 1984 we have David Lynch's Dune, which was uh, then recut um, for TV as this four-hour um, film that was shown in two parts. Mm. And that's that's the film that you mentioned before, the other film adaptation of Dune.
0: Have you seen that one?
1: I haven't actually, no. And I kind of feel like now I don't want to because I don't want to see it too close to *June*.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, I rewatched it. To sort of just familiarise my – because I think when you're talking about the history of this movie and how troubled its productions have been, I think there's a a lot of reasons behind that. But one of them is the source material itself is extremely dense, right? So it's this epic sci-fi series set 10,000 years in the future. There's all sorts of different political factions. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And I think the, the Lynch adaptation is very faithful to the text and I think to the detriment of the film, I think. It's like there is very heavy-handed narration and exposition and these tiny little things that, you know, if you're a fan of the series, you're like, I get that they did that but also there's no reason they needed to do that.
1: I suppose that's the challenge of adaptation when you've got a text and think about how long it takes to read June. I know Mm. there's heaps of memes going around about (laughs) people getting through Mm. um, June the book, before they watch the film. It's too much. And I think some of the best adaptations have been on short stories. Think of Brokeback Mountain. That's Mm. based on a really short Mm. story films that are based on poems and things like that, that is much more manageable. I can't even imagine trying to fit this in. But I think you're right. The the skill there comes in not taking it too seriously and mm. not religiously repeating and reproducing the text on screen. You have to bring your own cinematic reworking
0: totally, to it. Totally, And so this one is directed by Denis Villeneuve. Yes. Who I'm a big fan of yes, uh, I think me Arrival too. is one of the best movies of the past decade and I guess it's like one this is a big big blockbuster movie like you said it's packed full of stars Timothy Chalamet Oscar yeah. Isaac Rebecca Ferguson uh, Stellan Skarsgard like everyone is in this movie Yeah and it's the source material that I'm very excited by but also Denis Villeneuve is he's masterful yeah. <laughs> like you know he's kind of known for his maximalism but I think there's also Uh, a subtlety to the way that he tells stories that I think June needs. Like kind of just what we're saying, there's so much stuff there. I think you just need to figure out what are the key elements to this story that you need to weave through to make it impactful. It's also kind of strange because they've done it as part one and part two has now been greenlit. But so often with movies like this, like Lord of the Rings famously, they shot them all back-to-back back and then release them. This one, they've shut that down. They've, mm. they've filmed it and now they're going to wind it back up again. Do you think there was ever any doubt that they would finish the story? Is this all just like kind of marketing? Hype? I
1: don't know. Yeah, I, I thought that was really curious as well because it's just like surely there would be a second part. I suppose they... We're living in a very uncertain financial times. I mean, uncertain times in general, but, you know, it's impacted financing of Mm, films. mm. So it is possible that they just said, we don't know. And because of its troubled history, maybe they were a bit uh, uncertain about it getting um, financial backing. I mean, yeah, like you said, it's such a stacked cast. It's such a sort of quintessential text. It's got a huge amount of fandom. Mm. It features a giant sandworm. (laughs) Like... What more could you want, really? So what are you
0: most excited about? Is it the story? Is it Denis? Is it the cast? Is it all of that? Is there something um, that you're particularly excited about?
1: Honestly, that sandworm. I'm kind of I'm <laughs> like, I'm into it. I want to be, I want to have a big like, you know, like the, the. you mentioned Lord of the Rings before, but like what comes to mind is almost like Star Wars, mm. you know, like that kind of big operatic Adventure, action, you know, that's what I want. I love action films. I think that this is really exciting. I'm also really excited about Villeneuve being involved with this. I think he's the right choice. He's very Mm. masterful, very restrained, but also is willing to just lean in Mm. to this sort of world. And I think that's exactly what they need. The cast, like you said, is exceptional. It's kind of a bit of everything. I just want to be overwhelmed. I'm definitely going to be seeing this in Ima- at IMAX. I'm questioning whether to go 3D, like whether my little heart can take the 3D, but I'm pretty keen.
0: Uh, we also haven't talked about the fact that Oscar Isaac just looks incredible. He's in a all beautiful the, man. All isn't the he? trailers <laughs> distills from this. That beard. I'm like, how, how are you doing that? Yeah. that next level. Yeah. I've
1: just finished Scenes from a Marriage, which is currently on binge and stars Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. Mm. And. He's distractingly good-looking, and so is Jessica Chastain. And it's just almost like I'm not even sure what my thoughts are on that series because my like, t- a bit too be- beautiful. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's move on to Zola. I've actually seen it, and I really, really enjoyed it. So talk us through it, Flick.
1: I haven't seen that because it's not coming out until November 5, and I don't have the connections that Oz does. <laughs> but I am bloody excited about this. You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch here fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. So we're talking about the difficulties and the challenges of Mm. adaptation from a huge, big novel. This is a film adaptation that is based on a viral Twitter thread from 2015 um, by Isaiah Zola King, who at the time was this 19-year-old working at Hooters. And the thread itself is about a road trip that takes this very wild turn. Hey, last month, I went dancing at this cute spot in Florida where my roommate's girl made, like, five Gs a night. Because of we just met yesterday, and you are already trying to take whole trips together? Be ready by two. Hey, man. You want to go somewhere with me? That's mine. There's also a Rolling Stone article titled um, Zola Tells All, The Real Story Behind The Greatest Stripper Saga Ever Tweeted which is by David Kushner. I just really loved the title of that, it sounds so... Um... Totally. It
0: feels so like 2012 to be like, they're making a movie about tweets, right? And I think there's, <laughs> yeah. by the time they kind of greenlit it, I think this also has gone through a few iterations. I think James Franco was originally attached to this. I can and,
1: imagine that. Yeah, yeah. and
0: then um, by the time it's come out, it's like almost well, no one cares about Twitter anymore. What do you mean the movie based on a Twitter <laughs> thread? But um, it's great. Yeah, I'm so excited for you oh. and others to see this movie. Oh,
1: I'm so excited and it's interesting you say James Franco. I I did not know about that, and something watching the trailer that stood out for me is that it really reminds me of Harmony Korine's mm. film *Spring Breakers*. It's got that vibe to it, so I can totally imagine Franco at least being excited by this film and wanting to be involved. Another in great
0: that. film, and you're right—I hadn't really thought about it, but it, there are these kind of dreamy, almost hallucination kind of vibes to *Zola*. And if you're a fan of *Succession*, which I know that you are, cousin Greg Nicholas yes. Braun—he <laughs> makes uh, quite an appearance in this movie, kind of basically being. Kind I Greg, but like I'm a, so fine a more trashy version of him. <laughs> um, it's really, really great.
1: Yeah. So Zola is directed and co-written by um, Janik Zabravo um, and it stars Taylor Page as Zola and Riley Keough as fellow stripper Stephanie who convinces her to join her on a road trip to Florida to make more money. I am obsessed with Riley Keogh. I don't know how you feel about her. She is... Uh, some people might know her from the TV series The Girlfriend Experience. She was also an American Honey. She's also the granddaughter of Elvis Presley. I did not know that. Yeah. You can kind of tell it in her face. She's got quite a fascinating face, I think. But I really love her because she's not afraid to take on these kind of quite controversial or, or kind of challenging. Like She seems, in the trailer alone, she seems like quite an insane character, um, like energy-wise. But also... Perhaps very unlikable.
0: She has worked a bunch of times with one of my favourite directors, Steven Soderbergh, who who made the Girlfriend Experience uh, movie. She's Magic Mike. I think she's great in that. She's uh, in... Logan Lucky. Yes, um, yeah. And, yeah, I think she is playing characters that are not, like, likeable characters yes. a lot of the time. And I think that does take kind of courage and she's fantastic in yeah, this as yeah, well.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like seeing her on screen. I just think that there's something, um, I don't know, I was watching the trailer and it, the trailer just looks wild. Like, it's got a real manic energy to it, like almost uncut gems, like level of hectic, I would say. And I think if you like your comedies dark, I f- this feels like it would be right up your alley.
0: Uh, without giving too much away, it's kind of worth the price of admission just to see Nicholas Braun rap along to uh, Migo's Hannah Montana uh, <laughs> for like four minutes, which he does in this film, oh, wow. uh, which is great. Um, next one is a bit of a gear shift. The wonderful Jane Campion, who I always say we don't talk about enough, has a new film.
1: Yeah, this is a very big tonal shift. Um, prepare yourself. Yeah, it's called The Power of the Dog. It's a new film um, by New Zealand director Jane Campion. Um, most people know her from 1993 film The Piano, which you received the Palme d'Or for, which made her the first female director to win that award.
0: Wow, um, 93. Yeah. Well done. Well done, Hollywood. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so The Power of the Dog. It's an adaptation of a novel of the same name from 1967 by Thomas Savage. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Kristen Dunst, Jesse Plemons, among a whole heap of others. So it's a Western that's set in Montana in the 1920s. It was actually filmed in New Zealand, however, like during lockdown for parts of it. Uh, it's about two brothers, Phil and George Burbank, and basically their, their relationship is put under strain when George... George's new wife, Rose, joins their world, and these feelings of like resentment and jealousy and disdain kind of bubble to the surface. Um, I've heard this film described as an interrogation of masculinity, which um, mm-hmm. already just piques my interest. Um, I honestly just feel Jean Campion is like one of the finest directors working today. Um, in Power of the Dog, she's accompanied by cinematographer Ari Wegner, who worked on In Fabric, um, which is another amazing film. It's Peter Strickland's film from a few years ago, about a killer dress. Highly recommend In Fabric if you haven't seen it. And in The Power of the Dog, we have this musical score by composer Johnny Greenwood. Now, Greenwood is just uh, perfection. He did the score for There Will Be Blood, The Master, Phantom Thread, You Were Never Really Here. I'm just so excited. That alone, you could just say Campion and Greenwood and I would be like, I'm there. And then you add Wegner to it, it's just like, okay, yeah, this is going to be amazing.
0: After the break, we talk about the best and worst first date films of the summer.
1: As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter
0: Sign up today at the Saturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Flick, let's talk about Tata.
1: Yeah, okay, I'm very, very excited about this. So this is a body horror written and directed by French filmmaker Julia Ducono whose debut feature, Raw, about a young woman who develops a taste for human flesh is one of my favourite horror films. Uh, I just adore that film. I'm, I know we're doing, like, lots of recommendations on today's That's show, the point. This is yeah, great. Tell us what to yeah, watch. Yeah. Before you see *Entertain*, please go and see Raw. Um, but so in we have another young woman at the centre, um, Alexa, played by Agatha Roussel, who as a child is involved with a in a horrific car accident and she now has this titanium plate fixed to her skull. Um, in interviews, De Kono has talked about her fascination with the human body and says that it comes from the fact that her parents are doctors. So she grew up with this very real, very visceral understanding of bodies and, and kind of mm. what can happen to them. Tatane has been described as gender-flipping, genre-bending, car-fucking, serial killer movie. <laughs>
0: Wow! Yeah, like you had me at hello. <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah, and it's also been flagged as one of the most controversial films of the year. From what I can tell, it fits into the genre of extreme cinema, which is usually characterized by like excessive violence, um, torture, sex of like a really extreme nature. Um, I feel like this looks like it's going to be a really wild ride. Um, maybe not a pick for first date, but then it's kind of like maybe it depends on. <laughs> yeah, you
0: want to. That's you know, you'll do a pressure test. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, it,
1: yeah it's, it depends on your date, but yeah, perhaps just take it, take it slow.
0: And the film uh, premiered at Cannes, and, and De Cuno became the second woman to win yes. the Palme d'Or after. Yeah,
1: camping. yeah.
0: So what does that mean that in the whole festival's history, it's been two.
1: Yeah, it's um, you know, like the whole Oscars so white, but it's also so male.
0: Yeah, totally. Um,
1: a lot of those award ceremonies are pretty similar. God, that's bleak. <laughs> um,
0: all right. Last night in Soho. Yes. Edgar Wright. Yeah. Who kind of I guess came to prominence with. Uh, Hot Fuzz and... Shaun of the Dead, of the Dead Baby yeah. Driver, Scott yeah. Pilgrim
1: versus The World. Yeah, he's, he's got like, I suppose his niche is like sort of fun genre films mm-hmm. usually.
0: I didn't love Baby Driver. I'm, I'm interested Neither, in this one, but yeah. I wasn't okay. as into it as others seem to Shock be. Shock
1: announcement. I, yeah. I wasn't a big fan of Baby Driver either.
0: Damn, I really wanted to have an argument <laughs> about something. Sorry.
1: No, no. Yeah, no, but people love that film. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't love it as much as I think most people do.
0: But you're looking forward to Last Night?
1: Edgar Wright, for me, I feel like he's a very capable director and I, I he just wins me over sometimes. So I think there's a – I feel like he's got a huge amount of potential. Like it's ridiculous to say that for someone who's directed <laughs> so many films. Yeah. But I think that there's potential there. I'm always willing to like – Go there, yeah. I and mean, this would be a good date film, I reckon. You know, <laughs> if you wanted something light, lighthearted. Yeah, um, got some horror to it.
0: <laughs> um, can you can you step us through what what's it about? Who's in it?
1: Yeah, let's go through it. Okay, so it stars Thomason Mackenzie. Who, just side note, I honestly adore her as an actor. She's very young, but so already in so many amazing films and has already set up such a big name for herself. Um, She stars as Ellie, who's this aspiring fashion designer who discovers that she's able somehow magically to enter the 1960s.
0: Last night, I saw something in my dreams.
1: There was a girl. And you are? Sandy. There she encounters this dazzling and charismatic singer played by Anya... Taylor, yeah, yeah, Taylor Joy, Joy yeah. from The Queen's Gambit. So it's kind of an interesting pairing between these two seemingly very opposite actors in my mind, and it's an interesting concept. Um, I have know a lot of people who are super psyched about The Last Night in Soho. I'm willing to be sucked into that world, mm. um, much like Ellie being sucked into this weird <laughs> 1960s well, apparently it's, like, got a twist to it where, I mean, you can see that from the trailer. It's, like, sets up as this, like, glamorous world and then it turns all kind of, like, darker and sinister. I, I'm kind of like this is one that I'm probably it wouldn't be top of my list, but I'd definitely go see It this. seems
0: You're right. It seems fun. I think probably pick this over Titan as your date.
1: Usually. I don't know. I mean, personally... I, I would <laughs> I'd be more swept up if someone was like, Tatan.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or if you want to impress someone, if you want the basic option, it's last night. So if you want to impress someone with your deep, extreme, fucked up film yeah. choices, go Tatan. To if
1: they've got an A24 tote, yeah. go for tatan.
0: Um, I love that. We should have a whole different um, series where we just give people advice. On yeah, dating advice. Da- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Blue Bayou.
1: Yeah. So this is coming out later this month. It's written and directed by Justin Chon, who also stars in the lead role as Antonio, who is a Korean-American adoptee and a tattooist who who really, he struggles a lot and mainly to find employment. Um, and it's all linked to the fact that he has this criminal past as well. So he's living just outside New Orleans with his wife, Kathy, and her daughter, Jessie, and Antonio is subjected to a sudden violent arrest and is later threatened with deportation when it is revealed that his adoptive parents never naturalized him as a citizen.
0: Antonio LeBlanc? How you get a last name like that? Uh, I was adopted. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from about an hour north of Baton Rouge. One by one, we build an Where are you from? Like, born. Uh, I was born in Korea.
1: It's a really interesting concept. I feel like this story is not one that we see a lot on screens. screens. Hmm. Um, the film has been described as like an exploration of the injustice of the immigration system um, that often tears families apart. Hey, where are you going?
0: What's going on here? here? Hey, isn't that your kid? Let's go. Hey, did I say Bye, you can leave? Stop. I'm going to tell you one last time. OK, that's it. That? on I posted bail. He should have been out by now. He's not here anymore.
1: ICE took him. What? I just don't understand how they can
0: deport him. I was brought here when I was three.
1: Can't we do something about this? I mean, listen to him. Look at him. He's American.
0: ICE is targeting
1: people like you, adopted or not. I've been here for over 30 years. You also have a criminal record. It's captured my attention, and I think that... These stories, where we're seeing this a little, a bit more, when we're talking before about representation with Jane Campion, you know, mm, not being mm. recognised, we also so rarely see stories about immigration that aren't reductive. And I do feel like having the main character as the person directly affected by this threatened deportation is really interesting for that to be centre stage. I
0: think you're right. What excites me about Blue by you is, I think post trump there 's kind of this feeling of we 've fixed it you know we 've like kicked out this guy who hated immigrants and was terrible, and things are fine now and that kind of frequency of conversation we had about race politics and immigration politics mm-hmm. in an American context I think has dissipated a bit because people think they 've done their job and I think a movie like this is a reminder that these problems. Are embedded. They're structural. They don't change based on who's yep. in the White House. Yeah. And telling these stories in such a powerful way, I think, is is really important.
1: <laughs> that exactly captures it. And I think that I really hope that Australian audiences, when they watch this, I mean, it's a bit further removed because it's set in this American context. But I really hope that Australian audiences watch this and they think about our own situation here. So often, people seem to have a huge amount of um, knowledge and empathy for you know, race relations in America because it's what they see on screen. Hmm. And I really hope that we think about how our own situation here and our own politics is. You're totally, you're
0: totally right. Australians are like, oh, my God, have you seen what's happening in America? Yeah. Trump, I remember this, this is like a quote that's burnt into my brain, which is from that leaked phone call between Donald Trump and Malcolm Turnbull where Malcolm Turnbull is trying to do a refugee resettlement deal and he's explaining to Trump what we do to refugees and Trump laughs and says, you're even worse than we are, which to me, again, talk about things that there's two things that we should talk about more. One is Jane Campion and two is like that quote from Trump saying, you know, summing it up. And look, this movie is important. Australians can obviously watch it and relate to it, but also it makes me, uh, America has been so slow, like so much of the Western world in telling stories about who the country actually is. But I feel like Australia is even further behind.
1: I think that film, especially... Feature films, drama, I think that they can tap into our emotions in a way that, say, if this was presented as a documentary, maybe it wouldn't have the same sort of weight. We wouldn't have that same involvement because you can take liberties with the truth in the fictional world. But that can often have a stronger empathetic resonance and... For stories like this, when you're trying to say, think about, like, walk in someone else's shoes on this, Mm. I I think it's actually really powerful. I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm not sure. I've heard some mixed reviews about this, but um, I just think there needs to be more of this. We think about what what is representation on screen. Film has such a huge responsibility in making sure that we have these stories, and um, I hope that we see more of them.
0: After the break, two of the biggest blockbuster franchises return.
1: Sloan Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it
0: wherever you listen. So, James Bond. <laughs> Daniel Craig's last adventure. Yeah. Again, this was a movie that was supposed to be released last year, was then delayed because of the pandemic. It's finally here. It's the longest gap I think we've ever had between Bond movies. Are you a Bond head?
1: Oof. That's a that's a loaded question. Look, I grew up watching James Bond because my dad likes watching James Bond. Classic, classic yeah, dad move, yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, Daniel Craig is referred to as the most woke of the James Bond, but I feel like it is the... Do people say that? Yeah, <laughs> they do. They really say that. It's like the smallest hurdle to jump over. Like, I don't think this is a breaking news headline, but the Bond franchise isn't known for its progressive uh, representation of women.
0: Good afternoon. Can I help you? Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. Your powers of observation do you credit, Mr. Bond.
1: James. So, um, you know, I suppose the, the reason why this mainly came about was that Daniel Craig is the first Bond where his body is put on display more than the female uh, co-stars and he's in, objectified
0: in the very uh in casino Royale. there's that amazing scene where he comes out of the ocean which was uh i think a reference to dr no where it's like the the bond girls who who come out that way and that that was a big moment people yeah. were like whoa they're making bond the hot guy now
1: yeah but that that kind of thing there was a real shift there um i i'm gonna see this look and i am gonna see it at the cinema because you have to i feel like yeah You can't see Bond on your laptop. It's not cool.
0: I'm also hyped for Rami Malek playing the bad guy. Yes. Even (laughs) though, as you're saying, this franchise, the kind of Craig reboot has been a little bit more interesting, a bit more interrogative of what... Bond is about and and what you know, masculinity is, but then it's all like the bad guy is Rami Malek, a international poison merchant or something. Where I'm like, that's so Bond, I love it.
1: Also, he was great in Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you saw his no um, hosting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's on uh, binge. You can watch it. Uh, yeah, highly recommended for the it. Rex. I just love him. Yeah,
0: he's very very good. Yeah. Um, our last film. I always forget that this is actually happening. Yeah. I, I, I feel like if you told me ten years ago they're coming back with another Matrix, I would have, like, lost my mind. But for some reason I just keep forgetting and then you know, I see it on your list or someone will, you know, the trailer would drop. I'm like, oh, wow, they're really doing this yeah. and everyone's back. Matrix Resurrections. Thomas, you seem particularly triggered right now. Can you tell me what happened? I've had dreams that weren't just dreams. Am I crazy? We don't use that word in here.
1: So I watched the trailer and I feel like I shared it with uh, countless friends and, like, I think it popped up so many times in group chats because, like, we grew up with Matrix. It's got this huge, like, this deep sense of nostalgia and the trailer doesn't look terrible. If anything, I actually felt a bit emotional watching it. I don't know about you, Oz, but I don't think I realised how much, (sighs) with time, I've realised how significant that first Matrix film was. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think the second two are as strong. Like, obviously, that's not a controversial thing to say, but especially that third one, I've seen it and I don't recall anything about yeah. it. The first two, though, they're still quite strong films, but the first film in the series, it was um, it was iconic and it was it's changed. It really did have a huge impact on films that have come since then.
0: It's almost impossible to overstate the impact those movies have had. I think there are so many things we take for granted in terms of how action scenes are filmed now that were created by the Wachowskis on on that film. And then in terms of its cultural impact as well, red-pilling, you know, like these these conversations that we have are so infused by language and the themes that were discussed in The Matrix. A lot of time has passed since then. Like you said, the sequels were not quite as good. So I think there's a sense of, well, will this redeem the franchise or is this just kind of a late-era cash grab? I think what excites me about it is... Keanu Reeves is in like a renaissance phase. He totally um, is, yeah. The John Wick franchise, one of my favorite franchises ever. Uh, I think the director of that actually was like an A D or a stunt person maybe on the Matrix film. So they're kind of in that same sort of vein. He looks great yeah. as well. And I think what's interesting about the trailer is it doesn't really give much away. You're not quite sure. I also don't remember how the franchise ended. The third movie is like there was so many, so much lore, mythology going on. I kind of thought that they like won and they destroyed the Matrix, but now maybe the Matrix is back. I don't really know. I don't really care. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in, basically. It's been
1: resurrected.
0: It's in the name, totally. Flick, that was both extremely fun and extremely rewarding because I was going to see a bunch of these movies. There's quite a few that I wasn't that across and now I cannot wait to see them. And
1: Yeah, you're sorted. The
0: weekends are sorted. Everyone <laughs> listening to this show, we've <laughs> taken care of it for you. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and, and opinions.
1: Oh, thank you, Oz.
0: The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoder and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week.